What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Hive Jive. This is a very special episode. So instead of our normal banter and back and forth and craziness that we normally get kind of kicked off with, instead, we're actually going to dive in headfirst today because we have a very special guest here in the studio with us. Up from San Antonio, we have Dr. Ferhat Ozturk. And Dr. Ferhat is actually a biomedical science teacher for the School of Science and Technology down in San Antonio right now. And formerly, he has been up in Michigan doing studies and research on honey and the medicinal uses of honey. So we are very, very pleased and honored to have you in the studio with us today. Welcome, sir. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So we brought you in because we've actually had, um, we've done a couple of episodes. Obviously, the whole thing is about beekeeping in general, but we've done a couple episodes where we've touched on how you can use honey for medical purposes. And Ken had a couple of abrasions on his leg that wouldn't, wouldn't heal, heal. And wouldn't heal, and his wow. doctor told him to use Medi Honey. Right. And oh, so, you do have experience. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what it is. So it, uh, it, it was just, it was very relevant for us to be able to have the opportunity to have you come in and talk about it. And it's, it's something that everybody is interested in, but mm -hmm. none of us have the depth of knowledge that you would. Oh, so, you. so this is like, this is perfect. So yeah, we can I, actually hear yeah, it from the expert. What really got to me was when we were talking, when we were talking about it and then I started doing some research on it and found out that honey has hydrogen peroxide in it. Yes, it does. I mean, hydrogen doesn't have hydrogen peroxide, but uh, honey has the, I mean, when honey is mixed with water, mm -hmm. the hydrogen peroxide is being produced by the glucose oxidase enzyme. So the enzyme is within the honey. It is put by the honeybees. And then when this enzyme is activated with the water, mm -hmm. then it will produce hydrogen peroxide. Uh -huh. But it is a very minuscule amount. It's like right, it's very, yeah. 0. 0.3 to 0.5%. Now, different honeys... What is it? The the honey? It's from Australia. The yeah, no, the, the New Zealand. The, the New Zealand. Uh, honey. The Manuka honey. Yeah, it's both Australia and New Zealand. They claim it's theirs, but yes, it is from there. Yeah, and it uh, is very high. And then there's a honey from Canada that is real high in peroxide. Actually, uh, the thing is that there are uh, not so many research about American honey. I mean, the U.S. honey because. I, I just came here in 2016, and I started uh, working on the honey like about 2012, 13-ish. Mm -hmm. So, and since then, I, I have served as a director of Honey Research Center in Turkey. And uh, it, it gave me a lot of opportunity to do the research about honey, and we did a lot of like preclinical studies and then some lab studies. But we, I mean, also we did some clinical studies in collaboration. But most of the time, people, because of the PR, that Manuka honey is much more well-known, I mean, in the mm -hmm. Western world. And for the Canadian honey or the, the U.S. honey, we have the buckwheat honey, which is at least equivalent, not if better, than the Manuka honey. Yeah. And nowadays, I'm recommending uh, buckwheat honey to the people to use it raw buckwheat honey for their wow. wounds and for abrasions and for so many other like topical treatments. Yeah, that that one I would not have necessarily guessed because it is it can no. be very common buckwheat for us anyway it and, is, yes. and to get the pure now 
so when when we look at honey as a varietal standpoint, we look at it and we say that if it is sixty percent or more, then we would consider it just that source for the the monofloral source. Monofloral, yes. Um, mm-hmm. I think I read something though that when you're looking at it from the medicinal point, is it only forty five percent or more, or is it? No, I mean, uh, in terms of monofloral, I think it's mostly forty to. Uh, if it is more than forty percent of one flower, it's called monofloral. I okay. mean, uh, depending on the number of pollens. Yeah. Um, and then. Um, it helps us to identify which honey it is and it can be consistent with us. Yeah. I mean, for to use it. Otherwise, multifloral honeys are hard to, you know, it's not sustainable. You cannot get the same multifloral components each year. Right. But when you have monofloral, so you can keep using the same amount. And yes, the, the more the, the merrier. I mean, if you have more buckwheat uh, pollens in one honey sample, 60%, 70%, yes, it is the best. But even the manuka honey, it's not 100% manuka f- uh, pollens because you cannot direct the bees yeah. to go and get the manuka only you know, anywhere else. No, they will yeah. go and get whatever they find the nectar. Yep. Yeah, that's that's one of the big challenges too is you, you put them out there and on some of those things that have a very finite bloom period, if you leave them there and you miss the end of that bloom cycle by a day, they've already shifted and they're, they're bringing in stuff from somewhere else and it's very easy to get that adulterated from the other floral sources. So it can be challenging, but... The, so for us down here, the only thing really in, in uh, the southern part of the central Texas region that we can get that is truly like a monofloral is uh, mesquite honey. And it varies drastically by the year because mesquite's very finicky. Like mm-hmm. it wants very specific parameters for it to bloom. And if it does start blooming and then it rains on it, heaven forbid, it drops all its blooms and it quits. Like it's it throws a fit. So. Um, the main apiary where I have all of my honey at is it's covered in mesquite and some years we don't have any, some years we have tons of it, but last year or it was 2018, um, we sent our honey in and got it tested to to check on the different things that were in it. And it was ended up being 60% mesquite. And that year I didn't even think the mesquite had done that well, but it was, it was mixed in enough that it was up (laughs) that high. So that was kind of, um, impressive and shocking to me anyway, but so so buckwheat honey. What other other than like you know again you said manuka. Everybody hears about manuka because yes. the the publicity and marketing for it. Um, buckwheat is that blows my mind. I wouldn't have thought that. But what are what would be some other ones that are that you guys have used in your studies? Sure. I mean um, again, I was in Turkey and then we were able to access to chestnut honey a lot, and then chestnut honey one of the good ones. And the very uh, surprising for me was the the oak honey. So, which is hard to find because it's a honeydew honey and uh, it is not like it's not flowers. It's not from a flower. And yeah. you need those uh, aphids or those bugs, yep. to, you know, to produce that bursa and then the bees can get that sweet bursa and then make the honey out of it. Yep. And it's very common in northwest uh, of Turkey, like in the uh, European side. And then we had a lot of it. And um, I mean, we analyzed them in the lab according to their bioactivity level. And which we name as BAL, B-A-L, by activity level. And we measure the total phenol contents, hydrogen peroxide, um, antibacterial activity, and, um, and some other chemical products that we check for. And then we, give them a va- we gave them a value uh, based on the formula so that we can uh, <clears throat> differentiate them from each other depending on their bioactivity level. So, and buckwheat honey, and uh, I was, when I was in Michigan at the... Alma College there. So we had collected about 150 samples from the beekeepers. And the, those 150 samples, we analyzed them with my students as a part of the medicinal honey class. 
and we analyze them almost every single day, 40 honeys per, per group. And then at the end, we found that buckwheat honey, like top three out of top 10 was buckwheat honey. So that's how like really uh, amazed me to see that buckwheat honey has that much of potential. But again, it's only from the state of Michigan. Yeah. And I believe there are many more honeys in the U.S. that have high bioactivity level. And remember, honey has been used for thousands of years as a medicine. Oh, yeah. And Manuka is pretty new when compared to the... Uh, you know, honey world. Right. So I believe there are so many other honeys that they can be effective as much as the Manuka honey. But the, the best thing is that, I mean, it is well organized and then Manuka honey is well preserved and there are a lot of regulations to keep it pure and sustainable. And this is the best thing about like having the Manuka honey, I mean, to use for medical purposes. So... What is the color density of Manuka honey? Is it a darker honey or is it a lighter honey? I mean, honey can be from um, water light, water white yeah. to all the way to the dark amber. Yeah. And then Manuka honey is not that dark, actually, really? as far as I no, see. Yeah. Because it's mostly, fun, you know, when you, when you buy the Manuka honey, it's in a container which doesn't show the color. Right. It's, it's just it's a, a dark container. Dark yeah. container. But the Manuka honey itself is a little bit lighter color uh, when amber. compared to others. It's kind okay. of, yeah, amber or yeah. light amber, I would say. Mm-hmm. But again, it depends. Uh, year to year, it, it will change. And um, But what we found out throughout the studies and also the other um, references that I've used, again, I, I don't want to generalize, right. but majority of the time, the darker the color of the honey, the higher antioxidant values, right. the higher bioactivity level. But sometimes I was so surprised when I see a very light honey with a very high bioactivity level. It happened from a multifiller honey. Yeah. It's not easy to generalize, but most of the time, the darker the honey, the higher the bioactivity level or medicinal properties, we may say. Yeah. So and fall that's, honey would be really good. Fall, well, fall honey would have, as far as the antioxidants, yes. Right. But again, to some of that other, it may not have some of the other properties. Right. It may not have enough of the enzyme to create the peroxide effect when it comes into contact with water. Um, but that's where I was going with that, though, is because buckwheat <laughs> is very dark. And yes. it's for us, it's a very strong, bitter honey. And our fall honey here, um, or our winter honey, what I call it, just even the wildflower honey, mm-hmm. it, it comes out, it's got more of a dynamic flavor than just buckwheat, mm-hmm. but it's very similar to buckwheat as far as that. It's rich, it's bitter, it's like molasses almost. And so, you know, and, and we always, when we go through and we teach that, we teach that the in the spring for us, the, for, a, well, Primarily, all of our stuff is just wildflower. Like mm-hmm. we, we other than that mesquite, we don't really have a lot of the opportunity to have a monofloral source. So we go through and we teach that in the spring, those first blooms, if you make honey off of that, that is your lightest honey. It is the sweetest, most floral tasting honey. Yep. As it moves into summer, it gets into those more darker amber colors and then it moves into fall and we have like our goldenrod and our broomweed and things like that. Mm-hmm. Then it is super dark, super rich and super potent. And so when we teach, uh, especially new beekeepers when they come in, you know, we'll teach them these different things because sometimes they'll get honey out of their hive and they'll be like, oh, I think something's wrong with it or oh, it came out of the brood comb. <laughs> And it's 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 too old, you know. And I was like, no, no, that's actually that's what they foraged on at that time of year. That's what they got in there. Um, but it was interesting because I was curious: would it be darker than would equate to possibly more of those attributes? But obviously not. Yeah, I mean, again, most of the time it's hard to generalize. It's hard to say hundred percent. But yes, the most of the time when we have the darker colors, we have more uh, uh, potent potency for the uh, medicinal purpose. 
So honey itself is hydroscopic in nature, dehydrated down to the point where it's mm -hmm. desperate for water. And, and that gives it, regardless of the other attributes, that gives it one step up right there as a medicinal use. Because when you do put it on something, immediately it starts pulling moisture. Yes. And so that's what keeps it good. If bacteria hits it, it eviscerates it because it just sucks the moisture yep. right out of it. So you've got that property to it. You have the property of, what is it, anywhere from 10 to 18 different amino acids that can be found inside. Yeah, there are various number of amino acids, again, depending on the source. Depending on the source, mm -hmm. right. So you have something that is, it can be very nutrient dense for what it is. Because it, it does, it seals. So when you put it on a wound, it's going to seal out anything else from getting in. Yes. It's going to pull the moisture, draw the moisture out away from it. It's going to help alleviate some of that bacteria. And then now, what I didn't realize before until you just actually told us about that enzyme creating the peroxide, when it comes into contact with the moisture from the wound, it would then activate that peroxide effect as well mm -hmm. and kind of help with that. So it's there's so many things. <laughs> and then, you know, did y'all do anything with the propolis? Actually, I, I haven't studied extensively about the propolis, but uh, I have read a lot of articles that propolis has also been used right. for medicinal purposes for, I mean, hundreds or even thousands of years. Because propolis has uh, something, um, uh, I forgot the exact name of it, but there, uh, there's a uh, cape, I think, um, Citric acid, no, no, some acid, but I forgot it. It's it's called K, but I forgot the opening of it. But uh, that one is very common in uh, uh, propolis, and then the, that is very helpful. I mean, for wound healing, for and so many other diseases. But uh, in terms of uh, hydrogen peroxide, I would say I have recently read an article. It is just published in Nature, uh, I think last week or two weeks ago, that uh, the antibacterial activity of honey does not directly come from the peroxide activity. Because although the glucose oxidase is hard, and this has been done for the honeys in uh, Eastern Europe, as far as I recall. So uh, that one says that the hydrogen peroxide that has been produced by the honey is not the major effective uh, chemical uh, like inhibiting the growth of the bacteria. So which means that there are some other chemicals, mostly again the antioxidants, because the phenolics are the ones that are the antioxidants. And phenolics has been used... I mean, uh, to kill the bacteria most of the time or inhibit the growth of the bacteria most of the time. So the higher the phenolic content, the, uh, the higher the antibacterial activity. But again, these are, two, these are two different things, antioxidant versus antibacterial. So these are both need to be considered in terms of bioactivity level. Right. And because they can, they can, in some regards, they can both have the same ultimate effect, but they're going about it through a different means. So your honey is still accomplishing the same thing, but one could be doing it from that aspect, whereas the other one could be doing it from the other. That is true. And you can, I mean, uh, you, sh you would not prefer to use any honey for any wound or for any disease because that's why, I mean, um, different honeys would be helpful for different diseases. Right. Sometimes it can be like preventing a cancer side effect like the mucolytis in the mouth. So you can use one honey uh, type more effective than the other uh, honey, which is useful for the wound healing. Right. So different honeys can be used for different diseases, for treatment of different, uh, you know, illnesses. So, uh, for example, in Manuka honey, there is almost no hydrogen peroxide activity. And Manuka honey is the major uh, chemical is methyl glyoxal, MGO. So that's why uh, Manuka honey, whenever it is, um, classified, they use the MGO levels, MGO 5+, plus, 10+, plus, 25+, plus, and so forth. So that, that is the common 
chemical in the manuka tree, the leptospermum. So that is the chemical that comes from those flowers, and then it is put into manuka honey. So and and they do not. I mean, most of the manuka articles. I mean, articles about manuka honey, they disregard the hydrogen peroxide activity and um, they promote the MGO uh, presence. See, and that that in and of itself can be something that can actually be tricky because the the manuka the the plant itself they attribute different things to all the different aspects of the plant. And, you know, it was a medicinal plant for them. So then they turn around and you also have the honey from the plant is also then a medicinal thing. But sometimes that works in nature and sometimes it doesn't because you can have a plant that the roots may be used for this specific medical purpose, but that attribute is not expressed in the nectar. So therefore it never makes it to the honey, even though they may forage and feed off of that plant. Um, (laughs) It's one of the things that it, it really... Uh, kind of disheartens everybody, but we have to, I, it comes up a lot when people talk to me, but whenever they went through and they started legalizing marijuana in, mm-hmm. in certain states here in the U.S., there was this huge boom where they had a bunch of people that were advocating that they had marijuana honey, and they were claiming that it was a natural honey, but the marijuana plant doesn't make nectar. So therefore, <laughs> there can be no honey from that because it doesn't even do it, you know, and, and you've got these people that take like a thick sugar syrup and they paint it onto the buds so that the bees will be attracted to it. And then they oh. take photos of it and they're like, look, the bees are happily foraging and we've got this stuff. And I'm like, no, that's not <laughs> no, how that works. Not <laughs> that's not how that works at all. Um, one of our other ones here in Texas is the blue bonnets. Uh-huh. And, you know, that's like that's the Texas state flower. Everybody sure. takes a lot of pride in it. There's. It looks like, you know, accidents all along the side of the road because everybody's pulled off in the ditches and they're all out there and the flowers <laughs> taking photos. And, yeah, running over and, the flowers. Yeah, yeah, they're out there, you know, getting their they got to have their Instagram shots <laughs> and stuff. But the the blue bonnet itself does not make any nectar. It only produces pollen and that's it. Uh, and, yeah. you know, like so, the rose. The rose doesn't produce nectar either. The rose only produces pollen yeah. for the bees. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and you may not ever see a bee on certain plants. Now, the blue bonnets. Mm-hmm they absolutely go to because that's their first primary decent pollen source in the spring next to dandelions. So they can go to the dandelions and they move on to the blue bonnets and they get that from it. Um, But a lot of times people will just, they'll see a bee on a plant and then they automatically equate, oh, well, this is going to be blue bonnet honey or it's going to have that in it. And and it won't necessarily. So it makes it tricky and it kind of goes back to that, like in a honey when it's coming from so many different sources. How did they ever go through and say, well, this type of honey does really good at this one thing? I mean, uh, first of all, the, to identify the pollen, it's called melisopolinology. So what you do is you, you get the honey and then dilute it with water and centrifuge it down and then like resuspend it and put it under the microscope. And then you see what type of pollen is prominent or more uh, diverse. I mean, it is diverse or uh, mostly there. So uh, this is how you identify the type of the honey. And then you can tell, yes, this honey belongs to this plant or the majority of the pollens in this honey comes from this flower. We can say that one. But on the other hand, I mean, there are very, very limited studies, especially in the U.S. When you look for U.S. honey or I mean, uh, there are like less than a handful of papers about how U.S. honey has bioactivity level. I mean, when you look, when we use PubMed, like uh, where the it's the medical library of um, in, in D.C. So the PubMed is the one that contains millions of articles about all medical related uh, you know studies. And then when you look for honey and uh, uh, for wound healing or for honey for medical purposes. Um, 
I mean, I would say more than 70% of the articles that comes about the Manuka honey. Yeah. And when you like use the keyword for honey US or honey biomedical or like, <laughs> it's only a handful. And even the US honey was analyzed by um, by a group in England. Yep. So uh, that was the only article that I find about the buckwheat honey that has been uh, collected from the northern part of the U.S. and says uh, they also collect the Canadian honey. So, which means that there is a huge uh, gap of knowledge about how the U.S. honey can be used for medical purposes. Yeah. So that's why it's not very easy to uh, identify and also to prevent, uh, uh, you know, to be more focused and to. Uh, uh, most of the scientists, they focus on a couple of monofilar honeys instead of studying everything. It would be a huge work. I mean, it would be a big collaboration of um, maybe a center can work on it and then collect honeys from different parts of the U.S. and then analyze them for the bioactivity level. And then at least they can tell, okay, this honey has more potency than the other one or this honey has a potency for this way and the other way. But there will be lab studies, preclinical studies, clinical studies they will follow. So it's, it may take a decade or more to find out which U.S. honey is useful for which disease. Right. But it's a process, and Manuka did this. I mean, New Zealanders, I mean, Aussies, so, uh, <laughs> and Kiwis, they, they were able to do this. But actually, I would really uh, would like to acknowledge Professor P Peter Molan because he is the pioneer of the Manuka honey, and uh, uh, rest, rest in peace, but he was passed away in 2016 or 18, that he is the one who pioneered the Manuka honey. He's the one who made the Manuka honey Medi honey and uh -huh. then make it more prominent. So I don't want to say one person, but his group and he has right. a he has a very uh, he's a great uh, professor. I mean, as a scientist, so he did a lot of studies about Manuka and keep publishing them, and then he reintroduced the uh, honey to be used as a, for medical purposes to the Western medicine. Yep. And um, I really like the word that uh, Professor Zumla of uh, Royal. Medicine Society of the UK. So Professor Zumla, he said, uh, for honey, a remedy rediscovered. So I don't like this word, uh, this phrase, because it's like honey has been used for thousands of years, right. but it's kind of been forgotten for a long while. And then now it has been rediscovered as a remedy. So I believe, I mean, again, I'll keep coming to the same point, but the U.S. honey has a lot of potential right. because of the vegetation, because of the diversity of the plants and flowers and even the honeydews. So, but this potential has to be uncovered. This potential has to be studied in the labs so that we can identify which honey can be used for medical or veterinary purposes. And there are companies, there are small initiatives that are doing this kind of studies. And there was one in Michigan, they made honey cure and then they are using it for vet veterinary purposes. So they, they use this honey in Detroit, it was a startup company, and they use Manuka honey actually, mm -hmm. and they add some some other honeys into it. They said uh, they didn't expose because of the privacy issues, but they said they use this honey cure for uh, for the treatment of like dogs or cats or some other pets that have wounded uh, after cancer sometimes or because of an accident, and they have very good results out of it. So that two different things came to mind in that one. Here in the United States, we are horrifically backwards on a lot of things because we did let technology eclipse a lot of this old ancient knowledge and, and hereditary things that were passed down. And, you know, like you said, the Medi-Honey, had that not come about, 
they probably still wouldn't be paying attention to stuff like that now. Yep. And and so it did definitely put that back in the forefront and go back through. But when you go back and you read old accounts of, of wartime things, you know, the, the nurses would put honeys on wounds. Yep. And that was one of the ways you could go through and help, you know, seal it and then bandage it up and, and hope that nothing else got in there mm-hmm. and happened. But so, you know, we started becoming very reliant on the pharmaceutical industry. And there's a lot. This is this is a big challenge for us, no matter what you look at. If you're looking at it from an agricultural standpoint, if you're looking at it from, you know, the pollinators or, or from a medical standpoint, the pharmaceutical industry and the agricultural industry are these massive powerhouses, mm-hmm. these machines that you just can't stop. And they, they just roll on. And so we've become a slave to what it is that they tell us that's how it has to be that's how it has to go yes. <laughs> and it's really hard to turn that around and say but there's better ways there's more natural ways there's other you know remedies and methods out there that can be used both how to grow our plants how to treat the earth and how to treat ourselves whenever it comes to the plants from the earth that we actually can take and harvest so it's great that we have people out there. It may not be in the United States, but at least in the other states and the other countries, they go through and they they bring that back into the forefront, and then it slowly trickles down. But sometimes it always seems like we're the last ones to kind of catch on. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, we're a little slow over there's, here. <laughs> there's a good hope here. I mean, I really see that there are a lot of uh, people are getting for natural remedies, and uh, I'm very uh, happy that the under the NIH, National Institute of Health, there's an, an institute which is called um, Center for Complementary and Integrative Medicine, and then they do provide some funds and uh, for even some uh, grants for um, studies in use of natural medicines. And it is good, uh, but it is still it still needs more funding for that institute, you know, to fund more studies. But it's hopeful, so yeah. it's it really makes us hopeful. And um, uh, by the way, I uh, I remembered the the propolis active ingredient, which is mm-hmm. called the Cape, caffeic acid phenyl ester. So, ah. <laughs> it's one of them <laughs> nice big long acid. words. Yeah, yeah. The, the propolis has more Cape in it, and then the, the Cape is the active ingredient. But in terms of modern medicine, uh, we uh, I mean most of the time whenever we introduce, and by the way, more than sixty percent of the medicines that we use today they are plant based. So phytotherapy is the study that studies how the plant can be used for medicinal purposes. And uh, among these, like phytotherapy, like uh, there are uh, most of the time we focus on the active ingredient, one or two molecules that is most common in that plant or in that flower or in that root. So, and then uh, in the medicine, uh, the they extract the scientists or the pharmaceuticals they extract that uh, active ingredient and then they put it into a tablet and then serve it to us so this is what it works that is true but in honey uh, again maybe in manuka honey the active ingredient is methyl glyoxal say mgo in uh, propolis it is cape cafe phenyl ester uh, in other monofloral honeys, there are some active ingredients as well. But the overall thing is that, as you mentioned at the beginning, honey has a lot of sugar in it, like 80% of the it's, it's, it's sugar. And then honey has some like other glucose oxidase and invertase and some other enzymes that are very helpful for the honey to become a medical thing. And then honey has like the, I really love the how the honeybees works. They work like a f- chemist that go from plant to plant, from flower to flower, or sometimes honeydew, and then they collect minuscule amounts of organic compounds from those plants and put them into the honey that we consume. Yeah. So this is the, I don't, I don't want to say magic, but this is the thing that makes the honey 
a high, highly valuable medicinal product because it's getting small amounts from each of the plant. So that, I mean, um, this is called a synergistic effect. So honey has a synergistic uh, value rather than a, like a one type or one single type of uh, active ingredient. So they work in a synergy. That's how it helps. And then I got a question in uh, one of the, in the talk that I had at the uh, convention that uh, the question was, like, uh, does the honey help for debridement or for the different levels of wound healing? And it has been found that, I mean, honey is uh, honey is helpful for four levels of wound healing, which are the all levels, actually, in terms of wound healing. So in terms of debridement, cleaning the wound, and then, um, you know, starting the new uh, uh, mus muscle formation there, and also new tissue formation, regeneration, vascularization, epithelization. Honey is improving. Honey is like kind of leading uh, for healing of the wound from different aspects which are necessary for all yeah so and this is because of the synergistic effect within the components of the honey so that's amazing um okay so my second question that i had from from it is something that i noticed whenever i go through and like when we looked at your medi honey that you mm -hmm. get in there when you go through and you read any of that again everything has to go through a it goes through the FDA, goes through a process of, of being standardized and, and purified and all this. And I can't remember the specific terminology, but it almost reminds me of like how we homogenize and pasteurize everything here in the United States for better or worse, like we do. Yeah. And so when I look at that and I see on, on like the medical honey things where it states that it's been purified or it's been something else to it, it then makes me wonder like, the raw honey in its natural form is going to have a lot of those living bioactive things going on. If you purify it in some way, are you not also potentially then killing some of those living things or removing things that could have been beneficial? I mean, uh, you can rip off some of the values of the honey by uh, through some processes. So the worst one is heating. Right. So when you heat the honey uh, about like more than 60 degrees Celsius, which is... 120 Fahrenheit, I believe. So if heated more, you are killing the enzymes because the enzymes are very, um, like, very fragile. So if you keep them like at the high temperature, they will degrade. The, those proteins will denaturize, and then uh, they will lose their activity. So first of all, we are losing them, and then we are also increasing the uh, amount of hydroxymethylfurfural, which is HMF, HMF yeah. which has been considered as a carcinogen, potential yeah. carcinogen. Yep. <laughs> and then, uh, so heating is the worst thing that you can do for honey. That's one. And then the other thing is that the filtering. Mm -hmm. So if you uh, filter the honey from a, like, a, like, I'm not talking about using a sieve. I'm talking about like filtering the honey through a very tight, uh, like filter about a couple of micro um, yeah micrometers. they, they so, warm it and then they force pressurize and yeah. push it through this filter that strips everything out but everything basically liquid. especially the pollen because yeah. uh, pollen is the one that is initializing the crystallization mm -hmm. and then when you once you have natural pollen that has been brought by the honey in the uh, in the uh, honey itself so it will eventually crystallize so that's why raw honey crystallizes right but the pure honey does not because yeah. pure honey means that you got rid of the pollens because of the pollen uh, filter filterization or filtering now that that right there just real quick i'm going to interrupt you on that because that is one of those clever things on marketing 
it's all about the words that you choose to use. And, and I'm part of the Real Texas Honey program. And there's a lot of battles that we have to go through and fight when it comes to like labeling or educating on knowing what it means. Mm-hmm. That one word right there, that is not how most of the general public take that. They read yeah. pure honey and they think of it almost like when we say raw honey, they're like, oh, but this is this is pure honey. But what you're saying is everything beneficial to the honey has basically been stripped out and the honey is all that's left, quote unquote, your yes. honey. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, especially the pollens are gone because, again, uh, there is a misconception about crystallization because, uh, unfortunately, the cons- consumers believe that uh, crystallization appears that honey has been spoiled yeah, or honey is not bad. good anymore. Yep. No, I mean, crystallization is a natural process, especially if the glucose level of the honey is higher. I mean, maybe it's a little bit more technical, but once the nectar is collected from the flowers, the invertase enzyme that is in the uh, stomach of the honey, uh, so honeybee, so it will uh, will digest it into fructose and glucose. Mm -hmm. And if there is more glucose at the end, so it will crystallize much faster than the uh, fructose-rich honey. So that's why like light-colored honeys, they crystallize a little bit faster than the uh, dark-colored honeys. And honeydew honeys, they don't crystallize because they don't have the pollen in it. Uh, oh, like the because that uh, is yeah, just oak honey or liquid. pine honey, because they don't get the pollen from that one, and then they, they have very little pollen. Anyway, so it is... Uh, just rip it off, Ken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just taking notes. <laughs> like four minutes of tearing a paper. <laughs> it's, just, it's like a bandage, just rip it off. Yeah, you always hear it. <laughs> Uh, no, but that, that is actually that it's, it's just astounding how sometimes that goes through and, and plays into consumers perspectives on things and how they view stuff. And then they do, they think that crystallized honey a lot of times is it's gone bad or it's no longer any good. Um, we had Tara Chapman in here from two hives honey and she went through, you know, she's told stories about how when consumers sometimes come up and they'll pick up a bottle and it's like partially crystallized and and they reprimand her for it. And they're like, this, you shouldn't be selling this. This is no good. You know? And she's like, excuse me. No, that's actually natural. That's what happens. Um, up in Canada, the, the thing that I've found that crystallized for me the fastest is up in Canada, they have a lot of rapeseed flour mm-hmm. and or what we then turn into canola oil, basically. But they went through and the, the rapeseed, they when it comes out of the comb, it goes into the mixing tank before it goes into. Well, I guess it's it's actually just the initial holding tank. It comes from the extractor and it goes down into this this giant vat that has this huge heated coil. They keep mm-hmm. it at about 85 degrees Fahrenheit and it kind of moves the honey because of the coil shape <laughs> of it. It goes from that directly into the storage containers because if they put it into the holding tank, the whole tank will crystallize. And it crystallizes so quickly that they almost can't get it into the barrels before it starts to crystallize. But its crystalline structure is so fine, it's almost like icing on a cake. You don't have to grind it down, nothing like it is very smooth, right? And then here for us, the mesquite honey, same thing. It's a very light-colored honey, and it crystallizes very quickly. Mm-hmm. But you have for the United States probably one of our price-wise one of our most premier honeys is the Tupelo honey, and mm-hmm. Tupelo honey doesn't crystallize. It's got this weird, almost like a greenish sheen to it if you if the light hits it just right. I see. So it would be interesting to see. It's not. I've seen it where it can be a little bit darker. It's kind of in that medium amber range a lot of times or, or a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be interesting to see something like that for a study, too, to see, like, on a monofloral source, what does Tupelo honey have maybe that the others don't? Because its sugar ratio of that fructose to glucose is so flip-flopped. 
That's, I, it. That's I, why they don't Yeah, and it, so it doesn't <laughs> crystallize. Um, but I wonder, like, if it would have any interesting properties attributed to it as well. So... I don't know. I mean, definitely. I mean, most of the the the, the amount or the uh, ratio of fructose to glucose, it it really helps for its bioactivity as well. Because, I mean, fructose is like we consume glucose as the food source, but we convert it into fructose uh, through our like Krebs cycle, those oxidative uh, phosphorylation and everything. So it's kind of um, fructose might be more helpful. I mean, and uh, it can be also be useful for some of the diabetic people too because. Uh, I don't know if you we were going to go into detail, but um, honey, not all of them, but some honeys are good for diabetic people. And I have heard from some dietitian that they replace some of the carbohydrates with the honey. So that uh, because carbohydrates are mostly sucrose, but honey is mostly glucose and fructose. It's already digested into a monosaccharide. Right. Or it's already. So. Uh, for uh, for some diabetic people, I don't exactly remember type one or type two, but for some diabetic people, honey can be used as as a sweetener or as a, as a like an energy product. And it is uh, glycemic index is very low when compared to chocolate or other sugars, so that it will remain in the blood a little bit longer than the other uh, other sugary uh, you know compounds or food. So honey has been used for diabetic people and as a replacement. Uh, carbohydrate is it is it would you lean towards one that has less glucose in it and more of the fructose is that would that make it more beneficial i mean i don't have that much of experience okay. and knowledge about it yet but yes i, I, can, I can definitely read about and find some uh, more you know constructive results but definitely it's something like that so yeah. something the low glycemic index is the key is the key for the honey that, um, to make it useful for the diabetic people you got something over there wheeling around in your brain? Always. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to know if, like the the, the manuka honey, it it was poss it was a medicine plant before they found out it was. Yeah. Okay. Here in Texas, do you know what the algarita bush is? Um, You've no. seen it. Don't don't feel Most bad. Likely. I don't either. <laughs> in spring, it has a. Thousands of little bright yellow flowers. It's always green. It's green right now. It hadn't dropped its leaves. And it's got little thorns on the leaves. Okay. And there's all kinds. They're all over the central Texas area and south Texas area. And they'll grow pretty much anywhere. But the plant itself, the leaves are made. You make a... a t-shirt or you can use it as a tea it, it looks like it's related to holly it's got yes, that that same so. leaf structure but very skinny okay. and but the leaves and twigs make they're all it's all medicine it's a super plant it's a super plant okay the you go to the root system you go in there and you take the roots it's for your intestines your mm -hmm. colon and it, it the uh the in fact, there's a uh, uh, got this man's name for you, Sam Kaufman. I've had him on the show a bunch of times. He has the humanpath.com. And uh, very, very knowledgeable in our plants in the central Texas, well, all over the world, because <laughs> what he did in the Rangers, he, he was in black ops. He would be put into an area, and then he would go and pick the plants that would be used for medicine and what he does here he has a 
uh, classes you can take. Sure. And he, uh, but I just wanted you to contact him and visit with him. He is very, very knowledgeable. See now, I, I just pulled up a photo of the yellow flowers. So it makes a red berry. The yes. leaf, the very leaf looks a lot like a holly leaf, berry. but it's a very skinny kind of long holly shaped mm-hmm. leaf. And then the the plant itself makes these clusters of yellow flowers all the way around it that then turn into a red berry. Mm-hmm. But so now for so me, this is a bush, right? This it is, is a, it's a it bush. is a bush, yes, and, and it can get pretty good size. But it does these long spindly mm-hmm. stems basically that that are clustered with this. But so then this would be one of those aspects where I come back and I say, okay, well, I don't know if it's a pollen for, producer, or yeah, if it's a nectar for producer. for the bees. Mm-hmm. What does it provide to the bees? Because some know. some plants. Honeybees won't go to may, it all. It may, you know, it may pollinate itself. I yeah, it know. could. It could be self-pollinating. It could be. Um, there's a lot of cacti and other plants that actually make more of a rotting meat smell, and mm-hmm. they attract flies and gnats instead of bees. They get pollinated by other, you know, natural native pollinators. So this would be one of those where I don't know. So I'm just speculating, but it could be one of those where if it produces a nectar, then the first question is going to be, does that nectar also exhibit? the healing characteristics in, in whatever quantity of the plant itself. And then if they do, then yes, it could potentially be in there. Um, I mean, it, if it, not, yeah. It's definitely <laughs> worth to research about this and definitely, you know, um, we should have a look. Because I, I listened in one of the conferences about phytotherapy that um, there was a professor from uh, Duke University, I think she was studying about medicinal uh, plants in the Balkans. And then she, uh, I was so surprised when I heard that she said the the, uh, the Balkan people in the Eastern Europe or Southeastern, so they used uh, the oak bark for their wound healing for hundreds of years, and oak bark is the one that where the, the honeybees aphids. getting the, the the aphids are getting there, and then where the um, the bush is coming out of it, and it's a honeydew honey. Yep. And I was like, when I told her oak honey is one of the most potential, so we were both surprised to each other. I said, so yes, definitely. I mean, if we use a plant, especially in like the outer uh, part of it, most likely it can be used, uh, the honey of, from that one can be useful. But again, we really need to put them into the lab and then do some like, GCMS analysis to find out what are the contents of that plant and the honey itself. And although it is minuscule amount, sometimes our body is just okay with it. Because look at the um, medicines that we use. Most of the time it is milligrams or micrograms. It's same thing what the honey does. I mean, it is milligrams or micrograms of that component. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, we can say honey is an edible, um, edible medicine or edible uh, vaccine sometimes. Right. Yeah. And it has been mentioned that, like, the local honey, I think you are already familiar with it, but local honey can be used for, like, for allergy treatment or for mm-hmm. to prevent allergies. Mm-hmm. And most of the time when you move to a new place, uh, I mean, when I came to San Antonio, the people start telling me, you should use San Antonio honey so that you don't get allergies because we have a lot of allergies here. I said, okay, I'll go for it. Yeah, the, the downside to the <laughs> allergies. We, we don't tell them it doesn't do any good because we sell a lot of it for that. <laughs> now, the, the, the downside to allergies in this area, um, and it, it would it would come back, it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic to stuff, but... So if you're saying that microdoses of the pollen, because that pollen is what you're going to be allergic to. Yes. So microdoses of the pollen in the honey could go through and potentially inoculate you to that specific vaccine, yeah, allergen, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, you well, are saying it could then. It yeah, could. it could. Yeah. Yes, it okay. could. So here's here's the problem with it for us, though. Here in our in our region, 
the biggest allergen that we have comes specifically from a tree. Pollen producer. It comes from a tree, and it is cedar. Okay. And so they have, you know, like in in some states up in the, the Midwest, you'll have like hay fever. Well, mm-hmm. we have cedar fever. I see. And usually when people move down here, it they may not affect them the first year or two, but then all of a sudden out of nowhere, they get whammied with this. They feel like they've got a cold, but yet they don't have any of the other symptoms, but they've got almost even a fever to it, hence the cedar fever name. Um, but that's the prime allergen. You know, you've got dust and mold and these mm-hmm. other things, which sure. obviously that's not going to be in honey. The cedar itself, though, the cedar tree doesn't make any nectar, so therefore it's not going to be honey from <laughs> it. And it. when it goes through and it blooms, when it does its actual pollen distribution, it happens in January and February. Oh, so when for the, the bees most, are simply yeah, sleeping. The, yeah. <laughs> the bees are all tucked away and they're nice and warm. Yes. <laughs> now, for, for us, usually the temperature is over 60 degrees, so the bees will go out and they will gather that pollen if they need it, mm-hmm. but they're not making honey at that time. So you're never going to find cedar pollen in your honey because okay. there's not honey production going on. So it's not yeah. always the truth. Yeah, so it's so it's it's one of those things that it's like, yeah, you can take that, but it's not going to help you any. <laughs> yeah. But ragweed, ragweed, they will actually go through and and they will pollinate. Um, but you know, that's another one of those that this, that ragweed sucks. It's a lot yeah. to learn about these things. Though. Yeah, there is. Right. It never ends. You got the guy's name. Yes. Just call him. Sam Visit Hoffman. With him. Yes, I will. I will. And tell him, him I told you to call him because. Sam is very knowledgeable on on the the plants and such in this area, mm-hmm. and he's the one that told me about propolis. Propolis they're mixing with, well, John told me how to 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 tell him how to use it. You freeze it, grind it, and then mix it with. Uh, he's mixing it with beeswax, and he mixes it with olive oil, mm-hmm. and then makes a salve out of it. He told me he says after I did, he's that is a great wound healer. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I said, I, uh, the propolis has been a very, like, a famous wound healer. But um, <clears throat> I don't know, like, like, propolis, because of its structure, it's not, like, very easily no. dissolvable in the body. Right. It is not. And it's, it's not easy hot. to work with, period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, you have to dissolve it in alcohol, and then mm-hmm. sometimes 80% or something, it, it, it helps you to dissolve. And then so for some people who doesn't consume alcohol... The propolis dissolved in alcohol will not be a very good mm-hmm. use as well. But uh, freezing and grinding can be helpful. What I found out, I mean, uh, I don't want to be on a side of like a honey product or, or a bee product. But uh, when I did when we did our studies about comparing a liver disease, I mean, in, an induced liver disease in the rats, that we compared pollen, royal jelly, propolis, and honey. And um, normally people would expect, oh, you are using pollen, it should be helpful. Or royal jelly, it should treat the liver disease. No. Actually, the best um, the best uh, healer for the liver disease, because interiorly, it was the honey in, the, in those rats. And then the propolis was very close to honey. But pollen and royal jelly did not help for the treatment of the... Of the uh, induced liver disease. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like, especially for interior diseases, like the colitis or irritable bowel syndrome or like constipation, diarrhea. Most of the time, honey is the best in, you know, uh, when using these bee products. So, and it has been shown that honey is very helpful to treat the colitis and IBS. So, and again, it, uh, it needs, it doesn't hurt to try, but you need to be very careful because if you dissolve honey in cold water, 
it may induce constipation. If you dissolve honey in warm water, it may induce diarrhea. So that's why it's kind of a very tricky if thing. If you dissolve it in scalding hot water over 120 <laughs> degrees, it kills all the good stuff in yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a sweetener. So that's why, I mean, uh, whenever I have, like when people ask me what kind of honey should I use for constipation, I say, okay, just dilute the, uh, dilute the honey in warm water, lukewarm water, and drink it in the morning when you don't, before you eat anything else, and it will relieve your bowels, and then you can, you know, go to the bathroom a little bit faster because, and you don't need to, I mean, not on the first day, maybe two days, three days, four days, but eventually it doesn't dissolve at first, but yeah. eventually it will help the the microbiome, which is inside the, your guts, those, the microbes, which are, because we are living with microbes, as you know, like mm -hmm. we have about five pounds of microbes living in our guts right now with us. So, and those are the ones that are very helpful for the health of our uh, guts or intestines, so that those uh, microbiome is significantly affected with the presence of honey. So the honey helps some of the good bacteria to overcome the bad bacteria, and then the, our uh, bowels will be more like stable and then more, you know, uh, like working better. Yeah. Did, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So makes everything move. Did you say five pounds? Yeah, what I heard too. See, it's, I, it's I always real. known there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of gut health and, and your <clears throat> immune system and everything is is primarily in that area. So, but I would have never equated it. Or I would have never quantified it as five yeah. pounds. Like it's that was kind of like five, holy crap. Yeah. So. Because the number of bacteria is ten times more than the human cells. At least ten times more than human cells. Uh, in the overall, and we have about 100, tri uh, 100 trillion cells in our whole body. Yeah. And then uh, the back the number of bacteria in our guts is about one quadrillion. I think the next number. Yeah. It's well, a and, huge number. And then that you're just looking at the gut because then if you go through and you look at every Skin, other part of our body, yeah. mm -hmm. there's all kinds of little critters that live on us that if they weren't there, we wouldn't be able to function the way that we yep. do. <laughs> so when they put us on, a, we get a infection or something they put us on a very high uh, antibiotics antibody mm. which kills a lot of your stuff and you that's true yeah that's why you get there and then that's when infants. you go to eating yogurt and drinking buttermilk mm. and and trying to kick it back in yeah it'll balance it back yes and honey is very helpful in those cases because honey is an antibiotic by itself because it's a lot of antibacterial activity so I mean, it's not. I'm not telling that we can. We should replace yeah, honey yeah. with right. antibiotics. Don't just get from yeah, one to the other. Yeah, yeah. we cannot do yeah. that. But definitely, I mean, honey will be helpful to keep the gut bacteria stable. Yeah. So we need to drink more lemon, honey, and and brandy, right? <laughs> Is that what you said? We need to drink more hot toddies. No. <laughs> well, don't, don't get it too hot because yeah. you know, if you get it too warm, you're going to kill all the good stuff again. Um, so. <laughs> so the the one little side note that we talked about quite a ways back in there when you talked about the you know the bees are going and they're taking little microscopic sips from these different things and they're acting kind of like a chemist and they're mixing exact amounts of stuff when you do go through and you look at the propolis one of the things that fascinated me when i first learned about it was that a lot of the substances that they pick for the propolis if left on its own accord in a large enough quantity they're actually toxic and the bees are finding these specific things and they know I need X amount of this and X amount of that and X amount of this and I mix it together and I get this substance that acts both as like a glue to seal my hive yep. up, but it also acts as my immune system to go through and cleanse and purify. Yep. But they're selecting these specific toxic attributes in certain levels from nature 
and it, it kind of comes back around and it does, um, it, it, well, the reason I didn't actually get to see your presentation is because while you were teaching yours, I was teaching one on the intelligence of bees. Oh, is <laughs> and, and it comes back to wow. that, like how smart they are and how, how they go and they know specifically what they need, even in their diet. If you go through and you make them deficient in one thing, and then you give them that ability to find it, they will shift their entire focus away from all other sources and go to the one thing that they need. And it could be one nutrient, one amino acid, one whatever you know yeah, element yeah. <laughs> that's in there. They will shift all their resources and go do that. But you're talking about an insect. You're talking about this little bitty yeah. bug that you wouldn't think could think, you know, <laughs> they're the intelligent. but they're highly intelligent. And yep. it is just it's it's mind blowing how how much we could learn from things like that if we just paid attention you know yep. if we stopped and we actually you know be more like the bee and and see how they do things or ants and termites like all these communal things that create a super organism mm -hmm. we take a lot of that for granted yep. and it just it's it's amazing how much they could teach us and can can teach us do teach us and are still teaching us yep still yeah I mean, uh, it's very interesting. Propolis has been used to mummify the insects or even the mice. Oh, they, they do, actually, yeah, yes. I mean, people learn. Uh, maybe Egyptians. Good Lord, Ken. I'll turn it down. Yeah, that was loud. <laughs> that was really loud. Um, so the Egyptians, I think they learned it from the bees, how to mummify their dead they, ones. Maybe. They very well could have. Yeah. That's true. So because the, the, the propolis, it's, com it's a mix of the resin from the tree, and then it is the beeswax and there's some honey and some more water. So that's how they mix it and then make that like, simple uh, paste yeah. or kind of like the propolis that they used for to protect their hives and to mummify the dead ones. Yeah. But it's definitely true. I mean, it is, uh, I mean, I really appreciate that it's like the toxic material of the resin. It becomes something useful yeah. for it, everybody. It, yeah. it, it, it's all that chemist approach. You know, mm. too much of something could be bad, but in just the right amounts, if yep. you mix it all together just right, and somehow they know how to do that. It's just, it's phenomenal. It really so, is. So, you know, we were talking about honeydew. Here in Texas, honeydew is uh, shumac. Shumac is a tree. Okay, mm -hmm. how you know what a shumac is? I'm going to tell you. You know when you're driving along and you see those little bushes on the side of the road that have brilliant orange and yellow uh, leaves on them? They're little... Uh, long shaped leaves, you know, they're <laughs> that's a shumac, okay, and that's where uh, you get a lot of the bees get a lot of the aphids off or the, the, the honeydew, honeydew the off of that. Yeah, so for all of our listeners out there, we you've heard this mentioned multiple times throughout this episode. You've heard the honeydew honey or the honeydew and the bees collecting it, and it's not coming from a flower. Um, that is literally the aphids feeding on plants mm -hmm. excrete a sweet, mm -hmm. sugary substance that, that is their excrement. Mm -hmm. And the bees and certain species of ants will go to that when they're – just like any other floral source out there, if there is a prolific amount of it available mm – -hmm. They will go, they'll find it, they'll forage on it, and then they will bring it back. And they can actually get enough of it that they can turn it into a honey. They will dehydrate it down, they'll add in their enzymes, and they'll create a honey from it. But that honey is not coming from a floral source, it is coming from another insect. And um, so there you go, just just so you know, in case you were not aware of what honeydew was or, or where it was coming from, there's something for you to think about. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and it's interesting that uh, that not the same bug is in all, all oaks because when I start talking about oak honey mm -hmm. in one of the conferences in Michigan, they said that oh we have a lot of oaks here, why don't we have oak honey? I said 
because you don't have the aphid, you're going to have that yeah. bug that's living on the oak trees. So, yep. and I don't know how intelligent to, you know, introduce that bug into those oaks. So yeah, it's that, kind of <laughs> that that may be that <laughs> could be one of those it. where it goes catastrophic and, yeah. and starts, you know, harming a bunch of other things. Um, you know, I'm a fishing guide, or I've been <laughs> sure. a fishing guide. We were sitting out on the lake one time, and and I've seen this many times. We're sitting on the water, and I'll tell my customers, y'all get ready. We're fixing to get out of here. Why, Ken? There's a norther fixing to hit. There's some high wind coming. Well, how do you know, Ken? I said, watch the hills. Where I fished out, mm-hmm. Lake Buchanan had a lot of hills around it. It was down in a valley. Sure. And you can see the, the wind hit the cedar trees, or hit the, uh, oh, you can see it on cedar tree too, too but on the oak, you can see, see the pollen look like smoke each time that wind it hit that tree it looked like smoke coming off of it interesting and they're sitting there wow i said yeah wow now let's get out of here because it's <laughs> fixing to get rough <laughs> but you know you see that that those and you see it you know when you see have you heard have you seen cedar trees smoking yet no not yet no well it's 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 exactly what he's saying. They they put off so much pollen uh, that if, if a wind hits it, it's yeah. just this like you can visibly see this cloud come yep. off of the tree. Interesting. Um, yeah, just just, just and wait until it. like January, February. Okay. Coming out of February, your car will be green. Oh yeah, I remember <laughs> like it's, that. It's yeah, 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 that was it. And oak does it too. It's so much oak that they'll do it too. It'll make L- it green. live oak does it too. Yep. I see. Yep. Yeah, and it's 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 um, it's not fun for anybody that is allergic to that kind of <laughs> no, stuff. No, not at all. <laughs> well, if you're not allergic to something in Texas, just stay here a while. You'll find be. you'll find something. Yeah, yeah. it'll 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 catch oh, they, you. They'll find you. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll catch you eventually. Oh wow! And um, before we finish, maybe I mean I'm not in that position directly, but I'm I'm teaching in high school right now, but I'm working on to have a kind of a research lab, a, a short, small research lab that I can do the same study that I did in Michigan. So so we can collect honey samples from different parts of Texas and then uh, compa- I mean, find their activity level and at least to see, maybe, maybe we can just start with the Southeast Texas or Central Texas, but to have some, a kind of a database mm-hmm. that at least how does the honey in Texas looks like in terms of, uh, you know, biomedical activity or bioactivity bio levels so that this can pave the way for future studies in the preclinical studies or clinical studies. And uh, eventually, like, a United States honey can be introduced as a medical honey yeah. in addition to buckwheat and some other options. Yeah. Well, um, conveniently... Uh I, 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 am, say, I am on the board for the Real Texas Honey Program and for the Honey Bee Education Association. So those two things, um, that would kind of fit in very well, especially for the Real Texas Honey, because not only are you going through and you're finding, you know, like just floral sources of, of Texas honey, but you're going through and then you're you're narrowing that down into what are the bioactivity levels and what is the benefits of these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be very beneficial, I think, and that would be something that um, I will I will spread the word to the rest of the board. Sure. Maybe we can coordinate yeah. in some way with some of that with you guys and, and help out. That I would be great. Be yeah, more so. than happy for that. <laughs> <laughs> but so so for us we've got you know, I told you right here in, in central Texas specifically, mesquite is the, the main mm-hmm. monofloral sure. source, right? But then when you move down in uh, southern Texas, you do have the orange blossom and tallow mm-hmm. 
and then there's Wahia. But that those are like the primary if you get southern mm-hmm. from here. So more of your your Houston corpus around the coastal <coughs> areas of Texas. Um, but there so there are some opportunities. The Panhandle, you can get some monofloral up there, but it's going to be alfalfa and some clover. Okay, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I mean, again, it is like sometimes like one product or one like a, a region that has more pollen or like a primary pollen there. Um, sometimes you get surprised with, oh, how come this honey is that good? Right. And as you mentioned, I mean, because of the um, the air conditions, I mean, because of the the climate, that the vegetation can change very quickly. And especially when you have uh, like rain on when the mesquites are just blooming up, mm-hmm. so the the honeybees cannot collect it. So that's why. Honey is unique every single year. So you yeah. don't get the same honey from the same location every year. It's like every year it they have a different yeah. signature or yep. every year they have a different component. So maybe that's why it would be helpful to have a kind of a sustainable way of collecting. I mean, that's how New Zealand has done this. They have a, I think they don't, I don't know if they have a ministry about New Zealand honey or like they have something at the ministry level that they're very careful about this. Like, at least five different levels of authentication for uh, Manuka honey. And by the way, it's, a, it's, I don't know how joke it is, but I started believing it. So Manuka honey has been produced for 10,000 um, tons, mm-hmm. and it has been sold 100,000 tons. That does not surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> you, did you catch what, what the gist of that was? They've only made... This small number of the honey, but right. yet the records indicate that oh, it's ten okay. times more than that that they've sold. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that that doesn't surprise me at all because when it became a beneficial thing, yes, then they turned around and it, it's almost like because honey and olive oil are two of the most adulterated products on yes. the market right now, and so if you have something that has all these attributes, I could totally see somebody buying a thing of manuka honey <laughs> and then, and then cutting it, it. <laughs> and <laughs> turning it into you know like I bought a pound and I sold fifty. Pounds. Oh, yes. Each of them oh. just had this little. That's bit what in the dope dealer does. <laughs> <laughs> we have a we have so um, this is completely off subject, but we have a, a couple of individuals that I uh, well I even myself whenever I go and I meet the supply truck where You're I get my dealer? jar. No, 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 no. But it's, oh. this is what it sounds like when I go get my my jars and my lids and my containers and stuff. Mm-hmm. We get them from a wholesaler that's here in Texas because I, with the relationship that I have with them, when they're doing their main delivery route, they will meet me literally along the side of the highway. And I can go pull up and they will offload whatever it is that I need and then they'll go on their way. So it does kind of look like this shady back roads, you know, like this semi pulls up and they're like, here, take these five cases of things. But we've got several individuals in, in some of the beekeeping clubs. And, and I think actually worldwide, this is pretty standard for people when they find out that you sell honey yeah. and they love it and they love that they've got that local source, you know, like they will flock to that individual. And we've yep. got this guy down in Bastrop that he cracks me up because it does doesn't matter where he goes. He's got people that are like, when are you going to be in this area? When are you going to be here? And they like, it's, it is like a little drug deal. Like he'll, he'll pull up to the club and there'll be like five people that come to his car and he's like the handing bottles and they're giving him cash and then they leave. And I'm like, are you done with your, your shady backwoods deal there? Can you come in now? You know, like it it just cracks me up how they, uh, how that works. But anyhow, um, (laughs) that on that note, (laughs) I'm so far off now in my brain. I want to find out 
what? Well, springtime, honey, is going to be a hard one because there's so many flowers. You're not going to get a mono flower out of that. Well, you're not. You're not uh, here. You're not going to get a mono flower out of anything. Not anything. And, really. and part of the other problem too, though, is your hive and your colony when they go through and they're actually harvesting the honey and the nectar, where they're getting the nectar and they're mm-hmm. making the honey. They're mixing it early. Themselves. Early in the spring, they're burning through a large vast quantity of that because right. they're raising a lot of babies yeah so right. they're key eating and consuming a lot of it right it is not until the mid part of like well actually late spring early summer when they've hit the peak of the colony population and then there's so many bees bringing in so much stuff that you get the excess so some of those first little things in the spring mm-hmm. you're never going to get honey from because it's immediately consumed and used and it's it's better not to touch them because otherwise you will distribute i mean yeah, you mess it all up. Yeah, ba- mess the balance. See, what I'm thinking is snow on the mountain. Snow that's, on the mountain. That's later, though. And that, that does. That is, it is a mono flower and because where it's out there at Stonewall, that's the only one that's out there at that time of year. And it is a dark, nasty honey. Yes. The, the snow on the mountain, the goldenrod, and your broomweed and bitterweed, those are your primary flows in the fall. Mm-hmm. And they are going to give it all of those attributes mm-hmm. that some people are like, Ugh. you know, they don't like that dark honey. But it is definitely something that again, can be done. Um, I don't know if you would want to in some regards because you may end up, if you did just that one plant, no, you, you may end up with a honey nobody would it. want to touch. Yeah, exactly. And no. and that's actually, for Texas beekeepers, that is a problem that some of the, uh, the major commercial beekeepers have here in Texas. Uh, my honey tastes drastically different than a commercial beekeepers or a migratory beekeepers here because mine is coming from a prairie land where you're getting that large influx of horse mint and you're getting the large influx of the Indian blanket and then you get the mesquite mixed into it. And so for for four years out there, um, all of the, the honey that we got, I could separate it very easily into this is spring and I could mm-hmm. describe the whole flavor palette to you. And then this is summer and this is winter. And what the summer really was, was that shady period where spring and, and winter oh, got mixed, mix you know, ice, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and and that comes up with kind of that even kill kind of summer flavor that everybody would attribute to stuff. But this last year, all of the honey that we got, I was kind of like, meh. Like, I, I couldn't even be like, oh, well, it's got like all these floral notes and all this <laughs> stuff. I was just like, meh. I have a lot of honey, but it's all just eh. like it all had the same flavor. It, it wasn't a remarkable flavor. It didn't have a lot of the the floral notes and stuff to it. Um, so it, and again, it changes, you know, like we had I, I could have had 40 acres of just pure goldenrod. Mm-hmm. It came up, it bloomed, it was beautiful yellow, and then, and it, then it just raining. it started dying, and yep. it started rusting, and then oh. got real dull, and we got a little bit of pollen and no nectar from it. So, and that was just because of how the season went and how the rain flows went. So, it, yeah, there's there's nothing from this fall, no, because we have not had any rain. Yeah, it. it I mean, I'm feeding everything they're eating right now. And he's he keeps talking about La Nina coming in, which yeah, will put us back in a drought that, if that yeah, really happens, and that saying. won't be pretty at all. Well, it, but but doctor, one thing about I would like to get you some of my award winning honey. <laughs> and it, it will probably cure cancer, I'm pretty sure. Ken uh, Milam's award-winning honey that has not ever actually been produced yet. Not yet. No one any bees, awards. But I ain't produced no honey yet. Yeah, he's he, if he has to give himself the award, it's oh, going to be award-winning uh, honey. Yeah, that's that's how that's, that's going to work. Self-awarding. <laughs> yeah, self-awarding. I think we're good. <laughs> good.
<laughs> We've been on for for quite a bit. <laughs> oh wow! So, all right. Well, I uh, I definitely appreciate you coming in and, and speaking with us today. Yeah, it's you actually guys want to more because I got more questions. Oh lord, Ken <laughs> Ken's always got questions. He's uh he's a he's a question machine. His he's a lifetime learner. Always he thinking. is a lifetime learner. He's always thinking. Um, and he's good at curveballs out of left field. They're just um. things that you don't expect come, you know, <laughs> just come flying out of there. Those little zingers. Uh, but no, we we definitely appreciate you being on the show. And it's actually it's great to know that you are actually in Texas now, yep. and that you're not that far off. San oh, yeah. Antonio is not that far from Austin. So, um, you know, if you're if you're ever back up in this area again, uh, let us know. We'll definitely come through and and be happy to have you on the show. Anytime I decide to wrap up the show, this happens. <laughs> it is, it is. Or or I'll say, okay, we're done. And he'll be like, so now then? And I'm like, no, 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 kid. No, so now. There's like, no, go ahead. <laughs> now, I want to know, before you get all this other, just let me know when I need to bring mine to you and you'll quit doing it. And mine can be the, what you award use winning as the, Yeah, yeah, that's the one he's talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> That award maybe, winning honey. Maybe your honey will be the highest by activity well, level. You know, that's going to be the one that you're going to rate everybody else's with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is almost as good as Ken's honey. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> well, yeah, no, um, you know, as you as you move towards that kind of stuff, definitely. So we can promote my honey from Lano County as a medical type honey, <laughs> and we can make more money out of that. It, yeah, okay, I got it. So besides mine being an award-winning eating honey, it is a medical, award-winning medical honey. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to grin and nod. That's all you just... Oh, yeah. <laughs> just I'm grin and nod. Um, again, I, I do appreciate you Thank coming you. all the Thanks way up so here much. to the studio today. It's actually great having you in the studio with us, and I know that our listeners uh, will will definitely appreciate all the information that you've given us. It is, it is fascinating, and I know that we literally only touched... Like the tip of the oh, iceberg. Yes. On... I've got so many more questions. We got. We, we're going to do this about five more times. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, the next time you do happen to be in the area, if you're going to be up here on a Saturday or a Sunday, or or if there's some big revelation that you come across, <laughs> let us know, and and we'll be happy to have you on the show again. But again. Um, for hot, we, we definitely thank yeah, you. It's my honor and pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank I you, really Doctor. Appreciate it. Thank you. We appreciate thank you, it. Sir. All right, guys. Well, until next Monday, you guys be good. Be warm. It's cold in here. Be, <laughs> be good. safe and bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.